welcome to this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. In this instalment, I catch up with Raj Joshi, the Director of Science for the E21C Trust. That stands for the Education for the 21st Century, which is a group of schools based on the southeastern edge of London. I talked to Raj about his career in science education, what attracted him to physics teaching in the first place, and how he communicates his passion for the subject to his students. He shares the challenges and successes he has faced during his time as a school teacher and how he has strived to engage people in science throughout that time. He's worked both in and out of schools and has been involved in a variety of projects including work within the Trust, the Institute of Physics and the world famous Science Museum in London. We delve into his experience of working in school science departments and the work he's done to raise pupil attainment. We also discuss the importance of retaining science teachers and how best to support them through their early careers so they feel valued in schools including examples of great practice he has seen in the places that he has worked. I hope you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned to the end to find out Raj's favourite experiment that he uses to inspire the physics students every year. Thank you again for listening. I hope you're feeling well today. I know um, at the time we're recording this, we're just kind of starting the second half of the autumn term, which is a busy time for for teachers everywhere. could you tell me about um, how busy your school is at the moment? What kind of challenges are you facing this this term in your schools? We've been having quite an interesting time as of the last uh, few months, coming out of the uh, the first lockdown, and then existing in a in a time in which some of our schools have had to have, I suppose, a partial lockdown uh, going through. We've had uh, some schools in which we've been preparing for blended learning as well. So the idea of having maybe some teachers that are off and teaching from home and also some year groups that may be off and learning from home as well. And could you give me a kind of a flavour of uh, your academy chain? I, you know, where, whereabouts is it in the country? Uh, I know I know vaguely where you are, but um, is your academy chain spread across a wide area or is it quite concentrated? Could you give me kind of a, um, a view of how you see your academy chain and what kind of community it serves? So we're... Uh... A smallish trust. We've got uh, four primary schools, four secondary schools, and we're based around uh, the kind of Bromley region in in South London. And also, we've got one school in Canterbury in Kent. And um, what? How do you describe the kind of um, the socioeconomic uh, kind of areas you serve? Is it affluent? Is it um, uh, a socially deprived area? What do you have a mix of kind of students? It's a real mix. So. Bromley in particular as an area is quite interesting because we're right on the edge of London. So we'll have some students who would be in a similar catchment to some of the schools that are going into outer London or maybe even in London. And then we've also got other students who live in quite a kind of rural background. And then there's also a real mix of the parental background as well. So we'll have some parents who, who work in the city Okay. Uh, but we also serve some disadvantaged areas as well. So we've got a real variety of different students across the trust. It's a real proper kind of a kind of mix, a good comprehensive mix of yeah. and uh, and kind of support, I guess. Um, thinking about kind of your role as a science teacher, I know that you um, went into science teacher. You're one of the kind of um, amazingly rare people, which is a physics teacher yeah, in, um, right. in, in a state system, um, which is uh, are extremely hard to find. Um, what brought you to the area and this academy chain particularly? Is it is it an area where, where you grew up or is it somewhere you've just kind of um, landed just, just, by, um, just by chance and opportunity? Um, what made you kind of um, pursue uh, teaching this particular area of the country? 
So I grew up uh, locally. I grew up in Bromley, actually, and went to okay. uh, a school that's not very far from the schools within the trust. Um, I then left London. Uh, I was quite keen to get out, get out of the suburbs. Yeah. And I went off to university and then I moved back to London and moved and taught in a bit further into town. Yeah. So this is the, the furthest out of town I've, I've taught in. In terms of the area, it's, it's a really, really interesting area. As I said before, you've got a bit of the both worlds. So it's about 20 minutes to get into central London. We can do things like get take our students on trips into town, engage with a lot of the stuff that's going on in central London. But then we've got some really, really lovely sites as well. Um, very nice open sites, very green. And so we've got that aspect of things as well. So you can feel that you can um, kind of meet both aspects of the, of the course, as in you, you're able to give your students opportunities for maybe uh, some of you know, the, the high-tech uh, kind of links to science in London, but also uh, not discounting sometimes within science obviously i need to find some green spaces to maybe do some do some field work for biology maybe exactly and we can do our field work in on site so uh, a couple of our schools have got ponds even we've got uh, enough space to keep some animals at some of our schools as well so we have a really nice mix of the things so it sounds like you've got a great great setup there i was wondering being a physics teacher obviously physics is one of those subjects which uh, many students find difficult uh, for your personal um, kind of story in physics would you say you were inspired by teaching when you were at school or is it physics was just a natural interest for you and you felt you wanted to pursue that um, what does physics mean to you in terms of your academic interest in, in that area of science I think I really fell in love with the subject or really had that deeper holistic understanding after I start, started teaching it actually so when I was uh, at at A-level, I, I knew that I was good at physics, and yeah. I went in and knew I wanted to, to go into a kind of STEM area, a, a, a numerate kind of area. But to actually understand that, to actually understand physics and have that depth of understanding, I think it has to come from the way that you teach it. Um, so really seeing it as a whole subject. And the other nice thing that you get from teaching rather than maybe studying something in academia, is understanding how the different subjects within the discipline link together. And so I think a lot of the joy from physics came from actually teaching it. And what have you found in terms of when you go back, because as you say, when you, when you study something, you have a different aspect of, uh, compared to when you, when you teach it. What part of physics did you find was kind of um, made you think again about the subject when you actually had to try and teach it? Was there a specific part when you thought, oh, actually, this is a bit harder to understand than I thought, actually, uh, whereas to me it might be straightforward. But did, what, did you find your students um, find things difficult that you thought maybe you were surprised at? I think it's definitely electricity was the area where when I was at university, I could answer the questions and I could get the right numbers. But I don't really think I had that deep understanding of how electrical circuits work. And it's only when I had to stand up in front of a class and students would ask me, OK, right, that's the answer. That's what the equation gives us. But why is it that number? What would happen if we change this? How would that number go up or go down? That I found that I actually had to understand it in a lot more depth than I did uh, just studying it myself. 
And do you think um, at the school level, um, we necessarily have to rely on, uh, I guess, the models to help us explain it when students aren't ready for maybe the, the complex maths that is required to, to kind of fully understand maybe something like electricity, which you study at a higher level? Um, how important are models in your, in your teaching? So often it's, it makes a big difference to, to look at a variety of different models. And I think what we try and do is, especially once our students are trying to get their head around things that are quite abstract, quite difficult to understand, is to give them more than one model. And yeah. a lot of the models that you find don't work as perfect analogies for real, the real world. So what we try and do is get students to compare one model to another and evaluate them. Say so these are the strengths, these are the weaknesses. This is how far you can stretch it. But once you get into certain circumstances, the model starts to break down. And when the student is able to do that, then you know that they've got a really bulletproof understanding of the underlying concept that the model is meant to represent. Definitely. I always found when I when I taught that obviously the models are the very high end sometimes when you're doing that critical um, thinking about uh, pros and cons. And I guess the, the high 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 achievers really enjoy that kind of critical aspect of science sometimes and thinking about the pros and cons about certain ways of viewing things. Um, they can get overused, I think, as well. I, I remember spending a lot of time with a colleague and, and trying to make a model of parallel circuits based around a kind of supermarket sweep idea. And we had different resistors with different tills. And then we got to the stage in which we had one till where you paid for the goods and then you also had to go to a second till pay your VAT and it just got ridiculous and I think there is a real danger of maybe overstretching models sometimes making make them too complicated over over metaphors and yeah yeah and no, I, I understand because I was you know electricity is that is the one they often use models for and uh, there are lots of different things and, uh, and try not to deviate I suppose too much from uh, the fundamental science and that makes it more more confusing if you um to simplify it too much um I was thinking about um, when I look back at your uh, kind of your journey through education, I noticed that you had um, taken on some quite quite challenging projects um, before you've uh, reached E21C. Do you want to talk to us about some of the things you've done in terms of trying to increase um, engagement in science education? Because I know you've worked in a variety of places and you've had some um, interesting experiences. Would you like to tell us about one of those experiences you've had before you joined E21? Yeah, so... I've always been someone that's been quite keen to say, yeah, let's give that a go. And when an opportunity has been presented, uh, I think often you'll, you'll have to say, yeah, let's, let's try it out, even if we don't know if it's going to work or not. So that's ranged from uh, having the amazing experience of going to uh, NASA, uh, the NASA sites over in, in the States and, and visiting Houston and visiting Florida with that, um, working with uh, the Qualia Trust with that, or also working in areas uh, to do with teacher training. So I spent some time being seconded to the Institute of Physics, where I went round schools around East London and delivered training for non-specialist teachers. I've also done a bit of work uh, with the Science Museum, and that was really, really interesting to look at working with teachers and working with educators, but from an external provider's point of view. And jumping in from a school to a museum and working with schools 
to going back into schools again has been has been really really interesting to see the schools from the outside as it were and what did you learn from that uh, how how did you feel when you were kind of obviously you've been in both both camps so to speak you've been in in in, in the schools and still are in schools and it, and the universities are there any misconceptions you think that, you, that people working in museums have about schools or what challenge challenges they have particularly one of the things that we kept bashing our head against the the wall with the museums is that we didn't have as much engagement with things because uh, even when they were free. So we'd say to schools, okay, right, we'll, we'll give you this for free. We'll give you this for free. All you need to do is bring your students down and we'll even pay for the transport. Wow. And what we didn't understand was that the major barrier for schools wasn't actually what was on offer or the cost of what was on offer, mm. but cover. Right. And schools are really, really keen to send their students down. But what they couldn't do is they couldn't spear one of their members of staff down. So that staff member might be teaching that year group at a particular time of day. But they'll have a couple of other lessons that day as well. And what they, the schools didn't want is to have those, those staff not in them, either because they couldn't physically cover them or there was a cost to covering them or the staff that were interested tended to be the really, really great members of staff and you wanted to keep them on site. So that was uh, an issue that we didn't realise from the museum sector uh, was a barrier for schools. And I guess there's limits to what you can do, I suppose, about uh, you know, those, those kind of school decisions. And um, the only thing, I guess, I mean, did you go out to schools yourself in terms of come, uh, come to the classroom yourself in, in kind of that, with your university hat on or was it, was it always um, schools going to see you or did... did, did was there any other outreach work where you were going out to schools as well? So we did start to move to a model in which we would go out to schools and we'd bring a kind of box of tricks yeah. uh, to go out to the schools. And that seemed to, seemed to work quite nicely as well. It worked with how schools run. And how do you, um, having seen lots of these kind of outreach groups, which always provide excellent experiments and kind of whiz-bang stuff to show that show the students... How do you think you kind of bridge that gap between the kind of um, what I think of as kind of uh, entertainment science, I guess, with trying to link it back to the classroom and and not uh, not kids not give kids a, a a boring experience, but one that is kind of also linked to science? Is there a bit of a challenge there between entertainment in science and uh, you know getting kids into into the the why of the science? I mean, how did you how did you kind of bridge that gap in, in, in your work? Yeah, there? that's always been quite tricky. I mean, at the end of the day, as, as much as our own internal compasses say that we need to do things about engagement, our main drivers are things about the data that our exam groups uh, perform in and also what Ofsted expects. And those are drivers that really dictate what our decision-making is in schools. And I think... Some of the really successful schools I've worked with have had staff that understand that, yes, there are things that can very directly influence things like exam outcomes. And they tend to be often smaller and quite short-term solutions. But there are also things that indirectly influence exam outcomes. Um, so, for example, one of the things that we're looking at in one of the schools I'm working with is what intervention are we going to be doing or what, what extra stuff are we going to be doing in year nine, in year 10, that we'll see the benefits of in the exam outcomes 
in a couple of years' time. And partly, one of the things that we're looking at is doing things like explaining the science of all those graphs that uh, Boris Johnson put up in the, in, in the briefing uh, okay. at the weekend. Um, and talking about, okay, what do those graphs mean? Because those are things that are directly relevant to the students. They're not necessarily directly relevant to a particular set of exam questions that we're going to be taking them through in the next couple of months. But they will improve the overall understanding of science. And therefore, we'll see the benefit of them a little bit later on. Yeah, no, that's a great, great way of um, kind of uh, bringing the science to life whenever there's something within the within the current um, you know, media focus. It's always always worth kind of picking those out and, and seeing how relevant they are to uh, the lessons. And obviously, that that links nicely with, with maths and science, I guess, to, to, to a certain extent. When you're looking at those graphs, um, when you're thinking about um, obviously the work you do with within your uh, academy trust, uh, sorry, your academy chain, and schools you've been in previously. Um, what do you do? Do you do anything um, specific to try and help maintain um, staffing levels? Because I know being a former science teacher myself is that science uh, staff, uh, you know, are uh, quite ephemeral. They, you know, they, 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 they're hard to keep hold of, I guess, uh, especially in the, in, the, in the state sector. Is there anything you kind of consciously do within your schools to try and foster that not happening, I guess? Um, and, and I'd be interested to know what... Um, what challenges you've had in that area or successes as well? What are your thoughts on kind of recruitment? But more importantly, I guess, is retention of, of science teachers at the moment. It is it is really tricky, I think. And I, I've certainly been on the other end of things and, and said that, especially as a physics teacher, it is fairly easy for you to move on <laughs> and, and you can find sure. another job. Uh, so in that way, it's tricky to retain um, science staff. One of the things that we're looking at is we're working with the ASC, the Association of Science Education, and they've got a, a program called the SOS, uh, which is looking at how to keep science staff that are thinking about leaving. And a lot of that is about how staff feel in terms of their role, how they feel in terms of their school, what they feel the different options are, maybe yeah. even within their school and what they feel their strengths are and how they're best used uh, within their school. So that's one of the, uh, the projects that we're, we're in at the moment. The other thing that we, I've done before is, is looking at the school investing in the staff. Staff obviously invest a huge amount of them, themselves into the school. And really, really good schools seem to reciprocate that quite nicely. So doing things like looking at subject-specific CPD or differentiated CPD, allowing staff to get involved in research projects that uh, exist outside of the school, and also fostering ideas about collective responsibility. So the idea that every member of staff has strengths and those strengths need to be shared across the department or shared across the school as well, so that um, the staff the staff are there and aware of their own strengths. One of the the real strongest schools I've worked for, the head teacher there really encouraged evangelism amongst her heads of departments. So the head of maths would say maths is the best subject. The head of English would say English is the best subject. The head of science would say science is the best subject. And I remember really really clearly when I really got a good idea of her ethos was during the sixth form induction assembly 
that she led. And she was talking about uh, the idea, I think it was about putting a brick into, in terms of inside a freezer so that uh, the brick would, would stay cold and therefore you'd lose, use less energy in the freezer. Uh, and she was talking about this and using this as an analogy for learning and so on and so forth. And then suddenly out of nowhere, she said, Mr. Joshi, uh, you're one of our physics teachers. Can you explain the thermodynamics of this situation, the actual thermodynamics of this analogy? And put me <laughs> on the spot there. And so the yeah. first time that all of these students um, encountered me was when I was being referred to by the head teacher as someone that knew something special about thermodynamics. And therefore, I could always walk around within that uh, year group and, oh, he's the guy that may have not ever taught us, but he's the guy that knows stuff that a lot of other people don't know. And so that way I could start to talk about physics, start to evangelize about physics, uh, start to evangelize about science. And therefore, I felt that I had a particularly special place in that school. And what she was able to do is do that for every single member of staff within that team and do you think that was person uh, that, that was just her personality for, from the head teacher obviously is it something that could be uh, um, encouraged I suppose in other schools because uh, in, in my time in schools I know that schools are very idiosyncratic one school might have a, you know a great great head teacher um, who really uh, you know pushes those ide ideas forward and you might go to another one which seems on paper to be a similar type of school and you might have a very very different experience um, before you start the school it's quite difficult isn't it to know when you're um, applying as a teacher wh which type of school is going to going to suit you I guess um, and I guess you, you can't it's very difficult to know until you arrive on that on the on the September uh, what the culture of that school is like I guess. It is it is tricky to to see that. I mean, one of the things that we we think about within our multi gallery trust is the idea that we can achieve excellence through collaboration. And what we'll look at within our teams is the fact that amongst our entire staff body, we will have somebody that's perfect at something, somebody that's perfect at something else, and so on and so forth. And so a lot of what we need to do is look and see who has those strengths. So actually identifying what their strengths are and therefore um, sharing those those particular strengths. So, for example, within the science department that I'm working very, very closely with at the moment, we've got one teacher that's absolutely fantastic at building relationships with uh, students with a lower target grade. We have another member of staff that's absolutely fantastic about not letting our brightest students get away with just doing mediocre amounts of work. Um, now, between the two of them, they can cater to our students with a lower target grade and our students with a high, higher target rate. So the skills are there. What we need to do is get those two people to collaborate so that they're both able to share one person's skill and they're both able to share the other person's skill as well. Coming back to your point about um, identifying what schools are what what schools are good at what particular things i think one of the things that's really really interesting is to have a look at things like the communications that schools put out to parents and also to the wider community as well so it's quite interesting to have a look at things like school twitter profiles um, and also newsletters that are sent out to the parents as well because i think that one of the things that we need to do 
is to explain to our community exactly what we're doing and celebrate success of all of our students as well. Yeah, of course. And I was thinking about the, uh, the advantage. I mean, there's obviously uh, people have different opinions about whether, you know, Academy Trust is a good idea or a bad idea. I guess one of the advantages uh, that's come to mind, um, because I, I used to teach in an area that wasn't didn't have a lot of Academy Trust, they were more individual schools. But I guess within an Academy Trust, it must be quite nice in terms of getting to know other schools within your Academy chain, but also knowing about the leadership and the culture of, of schools that are nearby and about what opportunities you, you may want to pursue um, because you've got that more collegiate atmosphere if you've got you know three or four schools um, uh, I guess that is is helpful for kind of science teachers in terms of um, if they if they're looking for different opportunities within their careers they, they might have that opportunity to, to work within the trust um, and that might help uh, re- retention recruitment because they've, they've got that feeling of, as I say, that collegiate uh, feeling that they're part of something bigger than just just one school, which is maybe the disadvantage of perhaps um, uh, other areas of, of, of the country which don't ha- don't have so those in such a common in a common way. Yeah, definitely. And one of the really really lovely things that we were able to do with our heads of sciences across our trust is to sit down and say, who are your staff? What are the strengths? Uh, what are the areas to develop and how do the strengths of one person plug the areas of development of another person and then we could say well within with, across four schools we should be able to find the expertise amongst the staff to look at all of those areas of development and therefore what we can do is we can join people up and it's certainly it's a bit trickier in terms of people physically going over from one school to another at the moment because of COVID. Yeah, of course. But on the converse, we're all pretty good at uh, meeting each other on Teams and having quite a, a quick conversation or pinging over a couple of shared documents and saying, have you tried this uh, with each other? So that's been a really, really interesting thing is to actually share those skills uh, amongst different different schools so that between us we can try try and be as, as best as we can be yeah i think that's one of been the, the kind of the positives if you if there are positives of, of of the covid-19 situation is that i also went to a, a teach meet the other day online um in the middle in the middle somewhere but it was quite interesting about how uh useful those kind of meetings are for teachers because i was reflecting back on when I used to teach and usually had to physically drive to get to another school at the end of the day and some people would be there some people wouldn't be there I just thought how um, more efficient it is now things like um, you know uh, internet calling and teams etc are available uh, that uh, teachers can interact so much more easily but within that kind of regional area because I think teachers do do like that geographical uh, closeness within a particular teaching area Um, but how efficient that is in terms of as you say you could meet with, you know, five, ten teachers at the end of the day for half an hour. That's a really powerful bit of CPD. Um, and as you say, to share resources, that is maybe one of the positive things over the last couple of years in terms of teacher collaboration. And obviously the technology's moved on, so it is so much easier to share documents, etc., and and show show videos. And I think that is um something that I hope within schools that, that will continue um way into the future, because I think that maybe that is a good positive thing. Um that um, we'll we'll build that uh, community within teachers, I hope, and uh, make make um, make uh, 
you know, t- teaches life more pleasant and pleasant in terms of uh, the kind of community they can have within their profession. And I think that's a really positive thing. So it's nice to hear um, that's going on in, in your area at the moment. One of the things that we've uh, been able to do is is also just invite people from all around the world. So we had a, a ASC London Teach Meet a few months ago, and usually you'd only get people from London at the London Teach Meet. And we even had somebody from uh, as far afield as Egypt uh, wow. turning up. So that was really, really cool. And you do did spend about five minutes just saying, what's it like over here? What's it like in Egypt? Um, I did some work with the Institute of Physics. And we had some members from Scotland, so it was quite interesting to say, okay, how are the legislations in Scotland different and how are they impacting on schools um, compared to those in, in England? So it's been really, really interesting to go further further afield. And because people are more used to technology now, it doesn't seem to be weird to Skype into somebody's classroom and, and even interact between the students. Uh, one of the things that we're looking to do is to start to work with the uh, pairing schemes that the British Council runs, where one of our classrooms will be paired with uh, another classroom in a different country. And I'm really, really excited to to have a look at that. Ideally, what we will do is maybe do something like uh, simultaneous uh, experiments and work out if uh, a particular value, uh, say the strength of gravity might be the same uh, in London, as it is somewhere else in the world. That would be really, really interesting to, to have a look at that. That sounds great. I was, I was going to ask you, you don't have to uh, name specific uh, companies particularly, but what do you think about um, uh, kind of ed tech things that you've been using in your, in, your, in your trust? Have you been using things that have kind of been solving some good problems for you over the last, say, three years that you uh, think have made a big difference to uh, both student engagement and um, enjoyment of science what kind of tools are you using in in your in your trust and around your schools that you'd recommend to others so one of the things that we've been really struggling with uh, most recently is what does kind of good engaging practical science look like when we're not in a lab and sometimes when we're just uh, standing sitting in front of uh, a screen maybe at home yeah so using things like simulations seem to be incredibly powerful uh, for our students. So one of the organizations that we use is, is FET, P-H-E-T, and they run some fantastic simulations. But I think what some people don't realize with those simulations is that they have a huge amount of accompanying worksheets. And the worksheets that they use really do take the students through the simulations step by step. So some of them will say, okay, click on this, write down what happens, then change this, write down what happens. And so in that way, you'll have students actually exploring something that firstly, they get a uh, a one-to-one experience. And secondly, they seem to be a lot happier experimenting with a simulation than sometimes they do with hands-on kit. At the end of the day with a simulation, if it all goes wrong and you completely mess it up, all you need to do is just click on the reset button and you're back to where you started again. So students tend to be happier, I think, to take risks uh, using the FET simulation compared to doing things uh, in real life. Okay, so kind of uh, a lot of students obviously have that fear of, you know, if, in inverted commas, getting things wrong in the in the, in the science mm. lab. And um, I mean, do you think? Um, I suppose as, as a as two sides to that coin, in a sense that uh, some people might say, "Oh, that's isn't that." Um, 
sad that you would have to have to do an experiment virtually you know virtually i know it might be necessity at the moment but um whether that would mean that long term whether you know say, say the government might reduce the amount of spending on practical science per se because you know it would be, be cheaper to do it on a on a software program uh, do you think that you know those how, how do you see the, that software kind of fitting in in terms of you know how much real kind of live hands-on practical science in a normal world so to say uh, compared to some of the simulations what are your thoughts on that it is tricky and i know that uh, i've heard, heard of some schools where they've really sought to reduce the practical work so one of the things that uh, happened as a result of the curriculum changes where we had core practicals is that some schools decided to maybe only just move towards core practicals and not do other practicals as well and that doesn't really give students uh, a full understanding of the science i think practical science is a real important part of the science there's research from the education endowment fund from gatsby that shows that you really can't teach science properly unless you've got the hands-on side of things. Um, I always think about uh, what ended up being termed carrot gate, the exam question uh, a couple of years ago, which looked at osmosis within uh, bits of carrot rather than potatoes. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, or conversely, we know there was a, a A-level exam question in which it was just looking at internal resistance of an electrical circuit, but instead of using a regular battery, they had a, I think it was a potato battery or a lemon battery, okay. and the conclusion that the students ended up making from that exam question, uh, or the conclusion they asked you to, to decide on, was that a potato battery wasn't as good a battery as an actual battery, um, which for a student that's actually had a go and done some hands-on work with that kind of stuff. Of course, a potato battery is not as good a uh, battery as a, an actual battery. But I think it's really, really important, not in, just in terms of engagement, but also in terms of performance for students to have that understanding of science beyond just exactly what's in that specification. That leads nicely on to my next question, which I'd like to ask you about um, uh, some of the terms future skills or employability skills. I know that at the moment, the science curriculum, well, all, all, all curriculums are, are, are very academically focused at definitely at GCSE level. And um, uh, there are you know pros and cons to those that, that, that approach, but it's just the way it is at the moment in terms of the, what is expected for um the specifications how do you think we can uh kind of nudge in some uh, employability skills within the science curriculum is there anything you do in your schools that um deviates from the straight academic stuff and and you think well we're doing this this and this because this will help them uh in the future in terms of uh, some of those work skills that employers want us to um obviously improve for students before they get into the obviously the colleges but also in the world of work eventually are we doing enough to uh, promote that um, at the moment in schools? Yeah, that's certainly something that's really, really important. Um, one of the things that you get when students don't feel that science is re feel that science isn't relevant to them is that you get a real lack in engagement. Um, and we have some students that may feel, well, I'm not going to use science later on. It's not for me. What's the point in not just um, achieving the minimum? I think 
one of the approaches that I've seen that is really, really effective at looking at this is the science capital uh, teaching approach. And what that essentially looks at is the idea that students aren't just empty vessels that we need to fill up with knowledge. Actually, when they come to us, they've got all their experiences of the outside world. They've listened to a huge amount. They've watched a huge amount. They've done a huge amount as well. And a lot of the time, what we need to do is rephrase that into um, saying that, well, you actually do know about this thing. You just didn't realize it was science. And there's a scientific explanation uh, that we've got. I remember we had uh, one young lady, this is a bit of a disgusting story, but um, she, uh, she she was telling me about her dog and her dog went to the beach and it drank a lot of salt water. And then it, on the way back, it made a, made a mess in the car. Um, and she was telling me that as a, as a kind of embarrassing, funny story about something that happened at the weekend. And at the same time, we were teaching osmosis and the idea that uh, if you do end up drinking a lot of salt water, then that will pull a lot of the water out of your out of your body and it will go into your digestive system. And yeah, that's why the dog made a mess in the car. And then we started to go on and say, OK, right, what about some animals, say, for example, sea turtles or saltwater crocodiles that have to drink salt water they don't get that opportunity to drink fresh water hmm. and we say well these animals have salt glands so that's an example of active transport so a lot of it is about relating it from things that the students do find interesting uh, do find relevant to them and then saying well actually that thing that you know loads about it actually is science and there's a scientific explanation uh, behind it yeah and I guess uh, once you've got that story you can use that <laughs> for many years uh, now Raj that's a good, great story in terms of uh, when you're teaching your biology that's really good I wanted to finish with some uh, some uh, not less serious questions I guess but um, uh, would get like get your opinion on a few things before you go today um, the first thing I wanted I was interested in and as a physics teacher uh, it was, is there an experiment you'd recommend to other science teachers or physics teachers, I guess, um, that either impresses the pupils or, or shows a really elegant point to illustrate? Now, I've, I've put in my notes here, uh, Van de Graaff is banned, because that's what the physics teachers in my school used to do, is to get that at any opportunity. Uh, is there and now, and that's annoying because the Van de Graaff is so awesome, I think, in <laughs> terms of actually teaching um, conductors and insulators. And the idea that you can put that, I can't use that though, yeah. So... <laughs> I think one of the, there's a couple of ones actually that I, I really love doing. There's one that one of our staff is, is planning to do soon, which is looking at uh, drag and air resistance and terminal velocity. And what yeah. she's going to do is she's going to drop cupcake cases. So that's something that, you know, everyone's seen, everyone who's eaten a cupcake or eaten a muffin or some of that, those are, there's that paper case on the outside. And they know that when you drop it, it takes a little bit of time to fall down um, because of air resistance. And you can actually sit there with a, a camera, a camera phone or something like that, and you can time and see how long it takes to fall. And then what you can do is you can nestle another cupcake case within there. So you've got two cupcake cases all nestled within each other. 
So what you've done is you've kept the same surface area, yeah. but doubled the mass and see how it falls from that. Uh, then you can put another cupcake case in there and you've tripled the mass and another one, another one, another one, another one. And you're keeping the same surface area, but you're changing the mass and seeing how it falls. So that's quite good fun. But a really, really simple one that you can do, again, to do with falling is if you get a, a bottle, like a Coke bottle or something like that, and put a little hole in the bottom and fill it with water, the water will flow out the Coke bottle and you'll get a lovely little, uh, little arc. And if you're doing this in the classroom, you've got to make sure to put some trays on the floor so you don't make an awful mess. Yeah. What you could do is if you raise that Coke bottle up really high, so raise it as high as you can, and then you drop it and ask the students what will happen to that flow of water as that Coke bottle falls at uh, minus 9.81 meters per second squared, uh, the acceleration due to gravity. And that's a really lovely thing because a lot of the students won't know, um, but it's using things that are fairly everyday things. So they all have seen a Coke bottle before. They all yeah. know that if you put a, a hole in something, it'll fall out, uh, the water will come out. But saying, okay, I'm about to do something, make a prediction, what ha happens next? And so that's a really, really cool experiment that you can do is putting that hole in the bottom of there and then seeing what happens when you when you drop it and actually this is linked to a lot of the research that happened done is done by organizations like uh, the european space agency that have these things called drop towers so i was able to visit one of them in uh, in germany in a town called bremen i think and what they have there is these these huge huge hollow towers and they'll put experiments in them, and then they'll drop them. And what will happen is that that experiment, during the time in which it's falling, will be falling at the acceleration due to gravity. So within the reference frame of that experiment, it's weightless. So you've got an experiment that's happening in zero gravity without having to launch it up into space. So you're doing some fairly cool, when you're doing it with a bottle, you're doing some fairly cool space science in zero gravity within your classroom. Uh, and you can ask the students, what happens to that flow of water when I drop it? I don't know if you want to tell me to, what happens or not, or you want the, want the listeners to do the experiment themselves. They, 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 I think they should. I was gonna ask, well, a, a kind of question came to mind um, earlier about thermodynamics. Thermodynamics that I'd always thought about in, in physics, and I never um, never heard a good explanation. I don't know if there is a succinct explanation. Thinking about your freezer question earlier in our chat was the fact that, is it not true that uh, water freezes more quickly when it's warmer than when it's cold. Yeah, so I think this is this is called the Mpembe effect, and it was it's discovered by, a, a, I believe, a school-age student, is the idea that, yeah, hot water or warm water freezes quicker than cold water. And I don't think it's something that is fully understood. I think there's quite a few theories around, around that, but it's not fully understood. And I think this is one of those, those lovely areas um, in which... The more you look into something, the more interesting it gets. So this is also linked to ice and water are really, really weird materials when you look at them at the molecular level. 
are there any other materials in which the solid version will float in the liquid? Most things, when you, when you freeze them, they get denser. So the solid will sink in the liquid. But in the case of uh, ice, it floats in water. And when you start asking, why is that? Then you start to look at, well, water has got this weird property that the molecules itself have a, have a positive and a, a negative end. And they start to self-assemble into this kind of interesting regular structure. And depending on the pressure and the temperature that they are under, they can form lots and lots of different types of structures. So the idea that out there in the universe is not just our regular ice that we get in our freezer, but there are more and more different types of ice. And that goes into when we start to look at uh, pressure, temperature, spaces, and what things look at as well. But then we can also link that to the really lovely classroom experiment of just getting something like a, a 1P or a 2P piece and getting a... Uh, a dropper and seeing how many drops of water can you fit on a on a penny and it's really surprising you can get a blob of water that's held together by surface tension that's almost twice as thick as the penny itself uh just balanced on there before the surface tension isn't sufficient to hold it all together and you get a, a little puddle so yeah it's it's a really interesting thing to start looking at even even something as simple and everyday as as water, uh, which you have a look in in more depth about it. Yeah, yeah. And there's lots. Of that. I remember myself doing that experiment and uh, the kids being, you know, fas fascinated about by it. And as you say, it's such a simple experiment. It's not going to cost your 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 department very much money, which is you know your head teacher is going to be happy about. But the actual uh, the elegance of the experiment is lovelier, and the kids really engage in it. And uh, they engage in it, despite, obviously, um, lots of uh, pulls on their attention these days. Um, so yeah. that's a nice one, nice one to end on. Really enjoyed chatting you today, Raj. We could chat all afternoon, to be honest. Um, but um, our time is coming to an end. So it just leaves me to say thank you for joining us today. Uh, perhaps we might catch up on another podcast in the future and see how you're getting on um, and see what new things you're, you're trying in your schools. Uh, but for now, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Fantastic. No problem. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Raj. If you'd like to take part in the podcast, feel free to email me at andrew.woods at pearson.com and share your science education story with us. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I look forward to seeing you on the next one.